when one of the songs we sing uh, matches with something else uh, that we have not prepared, uh, it gives me little goosebumps. So thinking about the song we've just sung, uh, talking about encouraging our souls to think about Christ as being our greatest treasure, and having heard our brother Gaius mention and exhort us from Matthew 6 about seeking first the kingdom of God, and he had no idea what's coming up in terms of singing afterwards, it just reminds me, Lord, you are in this place. Lord, you are calling our hearts, attentioning our, our minds to truths that you want us to hear. I hope and pray that we would hear the truths that we have heard as they were read from Scripture and the truths that we have sung together and uh, cause our hearts to uh, seek after the Lord above all things. Generally, people don't like confrontation. In general, people don't like confrontation. Let me give you something about myself. I don't like confrontation. I do it when I have to, but I generally don't like it. And most people don't like it either. Uh, if you like it, and you can't wait for the next confrontation moment for you to have, something's wrong with you. Let me just tell you that right now. There's, in general, people fear confrontation either um, because of fear of rejection, uh, fear of hurting people, uh, but perhaps they're unsure of what they need to say, or perhaps it's because they're uncertain if their view is actually valid. Or perhaps they just don't like confrontation because they've had bad experiences, either in confronting or being confronted. And yet, when it comes to the Christian life, we are called to confront one another, uh, particularly to confront sin in our lives when necessary. For those of you who are members of our church, and even for those of you who are not, who you're just visiting with us, we're so glad you're visiting with us. Let me just remind us all this morning uh, what is one of the covenants, one of the items in our membership covenant. If, if you're a member of this congregation, here's what we have signed up for as followers of Christ who have committed to link arms together and follow Jesus together with this specific group of people, here's what we have committed to. This is one of the commitments of our membership covenant. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up exercising watchfulness over each other, and admonishing one another when necessary. Now, sometimes that admonishment involves a confrontation of sin when necessary. And yet the confrontation of sin is, is difficult work. Uh, it, we would rather not do it. And yet it is part of the Christian life. Uh, for all of us who struggle with confrontation in general, and we have to realize a more specific subset of that struggle is to confront sin in particular. But let's open God's Word this morning to a place in Scripture where we see God's design for confronting sin. 
where we see a story of sin being confronted and in a way that encourages us to be both open to receive the confrontation and to be open to give it when necessary. Would you open God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 12? I'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, verse 31. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are working our way through the book of uh, 2 Samuel. We're taking one chapter at a time. This will be a little bit of a longer chapter, uh, but God's Word is uh, going to teach us, challenge us, even confront us about how we need to think about confronting sin. This is uh, God's word for us this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe uh, lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against, against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put your sin away. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. 
David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted, fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do, to, to, he may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went down to his house, and when he asked, when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for, I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah uh, of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head, and the weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in uh, praying and asking God to bless the preaching and the hearing of this word? Let's pray. Father, you have revealed this word to us for our good. I pray that you help me proclaim it, and I ask that you would help us hear it. For the glory of Christ and through the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. Amen. This passage of Scripture is a second part of a larger story that started earlier in chapter 11. These two chapters, 11 and 12, unfold for us uh, David's sin. Last week we looked at the corruption of sin. The corruption of sin. We saw last week that no one is safe from the lure 
and the corruption of sin. Not even David. Not even the king who had the highest authority. Not even the king who had the best counselors, the best people around him. Not even the people who had the best influence around him. Not even the man who wrote most of the Psalms. Not even he was safe from the lure and the corruption of sin. We saw last week that sin corrupts, that sin corrupts everyone, that sin corrupts deeply. So what hope is there in facing and battling the corrupting influence of sin? Is there hope for us? Is there hope for those who have fallen deeply in the bondage of sin? Is there hope for a man like David who had committed such grievous sins as we have seen uh, earlier in chapter 11? The message that chapter 12 will give us is there is hope. Yes, there is hope. The path for that hope of restoration, however, starts with the confrontation of sin. The path for the hope of that restoration starts with a difficult, thorny, risky step of confronting sin. In today's message, we see how God sent his prophet to confront David, the king, about his sin. Imagine how difficult it is for you and I to bring up a sin matter to just a fellow member of our church. How difficult uh, it is to bring up a sin matter to another family member and to do it well. It's not hard to bring up a sin matter in a sinful way. Everybody can do that. But how difficult it is to bring up a sin matter in a godly way. How difficult it is to do that amongst ourselves, in our own family members. I want you to imagine what was going on in Nathan's heart and mind when he received the assignment. He has to confront the man on the throne of Israel. God sent Nathan to confront sin in the man who held the highest office in Israel. Because even he must be confronted when necessary. The, the, tesson, the, the lesson that this chapter gives us and wants to convince us of is that the confrontation of sin is necessary, hopeful, and fruitful. That's what this, this chapter will teach us. That the confrontation of sin is necessary, it's hopeful, and it's fruitful. Let's look at each of these moves that the chapter is going to teach us. The first point, if you like taking notes, is that the confrontation of sin is necessary. We see this in verses 1 through 12. Notice whose idea it was for Nathan to confront David. Notice how this chapter starts. Verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. The confrontation of sin is necessary because it was God's idea. It was God's design. 
Why is this important for us to hear? Because none of us enjoy being confronted with our sin. And sometimes when we are confronted with our sin, we are tempted to brush it off as simply a human confrontation. And yet we must see who is the initiator behind the process of confronting sin. It's God's idea. Don't brush off a confrontation of sin by simply saying, well, he just has something against me. Or he just has something weird about all this thing. Instead, ask the Lord, what is, Lord, what, what are you trying to want, expose in me through this confrontation? What are you trying to get my attention with in hearing the confrontation of sin in my life? Friends, the fact that God initiated this confrontation is an act of grace for David. God did not allow David to remain comfortable in his sin. And it was very good news for him, even though it did not feel good in the moment. Why? Because remaining comfortable in our sin is not safe for the long run. Remaining comfortable in our sin is not safe for us in the long run. If God abandoned us to our sinful desires, the end result of that would be eternal damnation and hell. But if there's any hope for restoration, for, for changing the direction, if there's any hope for repentance and restoration, sin must be confronted. It's a necessity. People today don't like to be confronted with sin. Certainly our society does not enjoy being confronted with sin. As Jesus said in, in the Gospel of John, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Being exposed in our sin is not a pleasant experience. And reality is that even for Christians, for us as believers and followers of Jesus, being confronted of sin is not a pleasant experience. And yet, if there is hope for repentance and restoration, sin must be confronted. And it is part of God's grace to search after us when we stray away into a particular sinful pattern. And the same way goes when we are on the giving side of confronting sin. It's much easier to just sit and do nothing and not bring difficult things up to someone else who's trapped in the, in the bondage of sin. But bringing it up in a godly way takes hard work. But here we see God is the one who initiates the idea. It's God's design to confront sin. Then we see this confrontation of sin is necessary, particularly when we don't see our sin. And this is, this is David's situation in this case. David could see the sin in others. But he could not see the sin in his own life. Nathan's confrontation with David is done masterfully. Uh, Nathan starts with a story in which David gets to pass judgment on another man's sin. It's a great move on, a great move on Nathan's part to stir up David's sense of justice by seeing the evil in someone else's life. We're always much better at that move. 
And the story elicits David's anger against the man. And he says in verse 6, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And as soon as David finished that decree of justice and judgment, Nathan delivers the shattering blow to David. You are the man. Sometimes we need someone else's help to see that we are trapped into a blinding sin. It is no use for us to see the sin in others if we cannot see it in ourselves. We need the help of others, and we as believers should be people who welcome, who, who are open, who have this open posture. If someone confronts us with a particular sin, that we would be willing to hear it, that we would be willing to understand what they're saying. Confrontation of sin is needed, especially when we cannot see the sin in our own lives. Then confrontation of sin is necessary because it exposes our offense. Sometimes we belittle the things we've done. Don't make much of it. And here what we see in, in, the, in the story of Nathan confronting David is that not only the facts are exposed, but the gravity of what has taken place is also exposed. Look at how Nathan called out David's sin in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what was evil in his sight? Before Nathan unfolds some of the specific actions that David did, such as killing Uriah and taking Bathsheba as his wife, before Nathan underlines and specifies some of the specific actions, Nathan starts with what happened in David's own heart. David despised the word of the Lord. He belittled it. He put it aside. Through his sinful actions, David broke three of God's Ten Commandments, as we saw last week. But David, or Nathan highlights for David here, that in his heart, there was more than just breaking that three of the Ten Commandments. David despised the word of the Lord. Friends, have you thought about disobedience to God's Word as a matter of despising His Word? Have you thought about disobedience to God's Word as a matter of despising His Word? If you say or think something like, I know God says this, but that I shouldn't be doing this or that, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's a despising. That's a belittling of God's word. And Nathan makes another connection in showing the gravity of what, what David did. In verse 10, he says, Because you have despised me. So despising the word of the Lord is now qualified as a despising of the Lord himself. In other words, the way we treat God's word reflects the way we treat God himself. Friends, our view of God's Word is a great indicator of our view of God. You can't say, I honor God and think highly of Him, but you ignore and put aside His Word. What we do with God's Word, we do with God Himself. Because God's Word is an extension of God Himself. The words he has uttered, 
are part of himself. The things that he has inspired in this book by the Holy Spirit is part of who God is. So to despise God's word is to despise God himself. Nathan repeats again for David the nature of his offense. In verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, because, this, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. For the third time, Nathan shows David, exposes to him the gravity of what he has done. To scorn someone means to treat him as worthless. To scorn someone means to treat somebody as, as worthless. And this is what David has essentially done towards God through his sinning. God didn't matter to him in the decisions he made about Bathsheba. God didn't matter to him in the decisions he made about Uriah. Friends, have you considered that by our deeds we can scorn God? We can treat him as worthless even if we are not actually saying that word to his face. Are there areas in your life that could be categorized as scorning of the Lord, as giving him the worthless attitude. Consider your life. Consider the things that you battle, the, the particular areas when, in which you perhaps have allowed the reign of sin just to go uncontrolled, unchallenged, unconfronted, and if anyone confronts you about it, you get upset. You hide your sin. You, ex you explain your sin. You excuse your sin because you are on the side of sin instead of being on God's side against your sin. When, when we fall in those patterns, what, what we see here in Scripture is that we are despising God's Word. We're despising God Himself. We are scorning the Lord, treating Him as worthless. And the confrontation of sin is, is necessary because it also reveals the consequences of sin. In David's particular case, there were very specific uh, consequences that David uh, is about to hear as a result of, of him taking this path of sin so blatantly, so, so foolishly. Nathan announces in verses 10 through 12 three consequences that David specifically will have to face. The sword will never depart from David's house because he has used a sword in the sin against Uriah, now the sword will never depart from David's house. Conflict, violence, will remain as part of David's family tree. That's hard. God decreed evil to rise up against David from David's own house. It's hard when you have people rise up against you. It's worse when those people are from within your own family. Then public shame. David committed this sin secretly. God says, I will do this publicly against you. When David's neighbor will take David's wives and lay with them before all Israel and before the sun. By the way, chapters 13 through 20 of the rest of this book will unfold these two disciplines against David. And then there's a third discipline. It's the death of a child born to Bathsheba. Verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David would learn a very painful lesson 
that someone else has to die for his own sin. And this time it would be one of his own sons. Sin has consequences. And they are way bigger than the sin itself. Sin costs way more than what you think you are willing and wanting to pay for it. And this is why confrontation of sin is necessary. Because it's God's idea. Because we don't see our sin. Because it reveals our true offense. And because it reveals the consequences of sin. We need others to confront us in our sin. To stop us in our tracks. And when that happens, even if it's not pleasant in the moment, it is good for us. It is necessary for us. In the second move of this chapter, we see that the, con- the confrontation of sin is not only necessary, it's also hopeful. While confronting sin is, is necessary, even when it's hard, the good news that this chapter gives us, the good news this chapter gives us is that confronting sin is hopeful as well. Hopeful for what? Hopeful for the confession of sin. Hopeful that it can lead to the confession of sin. In verse 13, David finally responds, I have sinned against the Lord. It's a short statement of repentance. But don't let its shortness mislead you. This is not a brush-off statement. It was a major move for David to come to realize, I, I have sinned. And that I have sinned against the Lord. Oh, friends, reality is he, he sinned more than just merely against the Lord. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. But here he comes to realize the ultimate object of his offense was the Lord himself. In David's words here, there's, there's no excuse anymore. There's no searching for a loophole. One, one Bible teacher appeared beautifully. There's no excuse. There's no searching for a loophole. There's no pretext put forward. No human weakness pleaded. He acknowledged his guilt openly and candidly. There's no vague language here either. David sort of dancing around his offense. And if you're a little bit troubled by the shortness of this confession, uh, I want to encourage you when you go home tonight, uh, open your Bibles, and would you please read Psalm 51? And you will get an entire psalm. And even in the superscript of the psalm, it is written that David wrote Psalm 51 after Nathan left from him. So don't let the shortness of this confession here in this chapter uh, make you think that somehow David is just superficial and just sort of brushing this off. Oh no, David's heart sank in sorrow and guilt because he realized who it is that he has sinned against. Even if our text captures only a little short line, it's noteworthy that David responds quickly to this confrontation. The confrontation of sin led David to the confession of sin. And this is the hope. Every time we, com- we confront someone in, our sin- in sin, is the hope is that there's a potential of the confession of sin. This is why it's worth confronting sin. This is why it's worth risking confronting sin, because with it comes a hope 
of the confession of sin, of realizing who we have sinned against. And if this, if this is not good enough, here's a second hope of this chapter. There's a hope not only of the confession of sin, there's a hope of the pardon of sin. Verse 13, Nathan responds to David's confession of sin and tells him, the Lord also has put away your sin. Wow. Wow. The adultery, the coveting, the murder. Yes, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Death is what David deserved. Death is what David decreed against the man in the story before Nathan told him, you are the man. But after confessing his sin, God responded with a pardon of sin, with a, with a sparing of his life. God has dealt with David's sin by putting it away. Oh, friends, just notice here, God does not ignore the sin. God does not overlook the sin. God must deal with the sin, either to judge it or to put it away. This sin, along with all the sins of God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this sin would one day be paid by one of David's great, 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 greater sons. A child would be born into David's family who one day will actually pay for this sin. So when, when God tells to Nathan, God has put away your sin, it's not a he slipped it under the rug. No, God has put it away on someone else's tab. Centuries later, the Son of God, having become human, taking on human flesh, born into David's family tree line, would be the object of the sword and the spear. He would take upon his own body the punishment so that David's sin could be declared paid for. And David would not have to die for his sin. What a great news to hear that God would put away sin. And this is a great news that we get every time we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, that all those who hear the news that the son of David had paid for the sins of all those who would repent and trust in Christ, and then those who respond to this news can receive the assurance of pardon. Friends, do you have the assurance that your sin is pardoned? That your sin has been put away? Have you experienced that decree from God as Nathan declared to David in this chapter? Oh, friends, this is why it was worth risking for Nathan to confront David the king. 
it was worth risking because through the confrontation of sin came the possibility of the confession of sin, which led to the reality of the pardon of sin. The confrontation of sin is necessary. The confrontation of sin is hopeful. The hope of the confession of sin, the hope of the pardon of sin. But finally, this chapter shows us and teaches us that the confrontation of sin is also fruitful. It's not only necessary, it's not only hopeful, it's fruitful. This chapter closes with three scenes. Two of them are from David's family. The last one is from the David, David's battlefield. They may seem unrelated scenes, and you may have wondered, even as I read the chapter, why would I keep reading the rest of the chapter? It just seems like the author moved on to something else. Oh no, the author has not moved on to something else. These stories at the end of chapter 12 are, are not just some loose ends because the narrator didn't know what to do with these details. No, they're actually part of an argument that the narrator is laying before us to show us that the confrontation of sin worked and produced fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, each of the scenes will show us some facets of fruit. In the first scene is, is, a, is a scene of, of David encountering the, the child who was born to Bathsheba. And as Nathan the prophet told him, this child will die. Nathan, when he starts seeing the news that this child is actually getting sick, what does he do? He, he sought the Lord on behalf of the child. He fasted. He prayed for a whole week. And the child still died. This was the discipline of the Lord, even though David's sin had been put away. This is the discipline of the Lord. Sin may be forgiven, sin may be put away, but the consequences and the divine discipline is still carried out, not in a punitive way, not in a way of making us pay for our sin. It's God's divine discipline. But what David did when, he carried, when God carried out this discipline is a key indicator of the fruit of genuine repentance. Look at verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. David accepted God's discipline and still worshipped God through it and after it. There's no sense of bitterness, of withdrawal from God, of thinking, if God is acting this way, I want to have nothing to do with Him. If God has forgiven my sin, why do I still have to do, go through this? There's no getting back at God here. The discipline of God did not cause David to distance himself from God, but actually the discipline of God drew David closer to God. One of the signs of genuine repentance towards God is that we embrace the discipline of God in a worshipful way. And this is what we see in this scene after David was confronted with his sin. After David confessed his sin, after David uh, received the assurance of pardon, there's still the discipline of the Lord. 
some people struggle to embrace uh, the discipline of the Lord because they feel like, well, if God has forgiven me, why do I still have to go through this discipline? Well, the discipline of the Lord is, is not what God gives you so that somehow you can earn up some brownie points towards the forgiveness of sin. No, the forgiveness of sin is God's, it's God's free gift by faith in Jesus Christ. And yet there's consequences and there's discipline that the Lord does. But the heart that has been broken by the Spirit of God, humbled by the Spirit of God, contrite to see sin as it truly is, to see the true sense of the offense that we have done against the Lord, will not argue back with God on His discipline terms. We'll receive it, we'll embrace it, we'll worship God through the discipline. And this is what David does here. Some people on the other side struggle to embrace the forgiveness granted by the gospel. There are some people who, who have a hard time actually embracing and holding on to the truth of the gospel that when we confess our sins, our sin is paid for and put away. And when consequences of the forgiven sin unravel or unfold, as they often do, people in this case put on the self-judgment hat. They inflict on themselves the accusation of their past sins in fresh and new ways, in ways that are not necessary. And they're not going to the Lord to worship Him. They just fall into the self, self-indicting self-accusations because they're not able to continue to worship the Lord through the discipline. Friends, this is not what David did. When the consequences of his sin began unfolding, David sought the Lord and worshipped Him. The fruit, of, the fruit of, uh, of this repentance is also seen in the, in the next scene in this chapter. There's another fruit here, the fruit of God's continued love. The uh, second to last scene of this chapter, verses 24 and 25, the narrator tells us another, that another son would be born to David and Bathsheba. And his name is Solomon. This is how Solomon came to be? Yes. This is how Solomon came to be. And the first thing we we're told uh, after his name is mentioned in, in, the, in this chapter is an interesting phrase, and the Lord loved him. What a surprising description after all that has been going on in this chapter. Why was this description chosen here for David to hear and for us to hear that the Lord loved this new baby? Well, remember back in the uh, chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, God said to David, when he, one of the kings in David's line, when he would commit iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And this is the narrator's way of telling us the promise God made to David in the Davidic covenant remains intact despite and through all the mess that we have seen in chapter 11. God disciplined 
but he still loved. The discipline of God does not mean the absence of his love. As Hebrews 12, the passage we read earlier in our service, mentioned God's fatherly love is to discipline those whom he treats as sons. And here the story of confronting David's sin captures this, this fruit of a reaffirmation of God's love for David's loyal, royal line. The confirmation of God's love towards his child is explicitly affirmed when God sent a message by Nathan the prophet. We're told that the content of the message is, is, uh, is not told to us. The only thing we're told is the name, another name given to Solomon, Jedediah. You know what that name means in Hebrew? Beloved by Yahweh. Beloved by Yahweh. This name was given because of the Lord. The royal house that God promised to David to build for David will not be broken by sin. Will not be broken by the corruption of sin. The kingdom that God promised to establish to David's throne will not be broken by the corrupting influence that David experienced. Yes, there may be discipline. Yes, there will be consequences. And those consequences will be painful. But the guilt of sin will be put away, and the love of God will not be taken away. And the last fruit uh, of, of, of this confrontation story, the last fruit, is not only we've seen the, the fruit of genuine repentance, we've seen the fruit of God's continued love, we also see the fruit of God's continued promises of protection. Why did they, uh, in the last few verses, 26 to 31, David uh, is called by his commander to get back on the battlefield so that the context, conquest against the Ammonites would be finalized. Uh, this is where chapter 11 started. When David sinned against Bathsheba and against the Lord, he's, he was at home because his generals and his army was fighting against the Ammonites. And the narrator is saying, okay, David, now you need to get back to the battlefield. And there's a, a detail here about the sort of the story of this battlefield. How did it turn out after all this mess? Well, after all this mess, the Ammonites are subdued and conquered, and uh, there's great spoil that David and his army takes from them. Why did the narrator choose to start and to finish the story of David's sin by giving us this detail of the battle? Well, because part of God's covenant with David, if you remember, back in chapter 7, was that through the kingdom that God establishes through David, God will give rest to his people from their enemies. And the events unfolding to complete the conquest of the Ammonites here is a narrator's way of saying, God confirmed the pardon he gave David, not only by reaffirming his love for his royal line, but reassuring his people of the promised rest from enemies. And this is a confirmation that God is continuing to carry out his covenant promises through flawed men. Flawed men who are confronted in their sin, flawed men who confess their sin, flawed, flawed men who receive the pardon of sin, flawed men who work through the consequences of sin, Flawed men who, nevertheless, are reassured and show signs of genuine repentance and are reassured of God's continued love 
and God's continued promises. Oh, friends, these chapters show us that the corruption of sin in David's own life cannot undo the plan of God to establish his kingdom through his king. The corruption of sin was not the only part of the story. It was followed up with confrontation of sin at God's initiative. It was followed up with confession of sin. It was followed up through the pardon of sin. It's followed up through the restoration from sin. Oh, friends, this chapter is trying to convince you and I that the confrontation of sin is necessary. All of this was possible because Nathan, the prophet, obeyed God's call and assignment to go and confront the greatest king in Israel's history. Confrontation is hard. It's hard to give it. It's hard to receive it. But when it's done well, it's hopeful. And it's fruitful. Friends, consider that the king, after God's own heart, responded to God's confrontation of sin. He repented genuinely. He cast himself upon God's mercy for restoration. What about you? What about me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that encourages us to look at the confrontation of sin as something that's necessary and hopeful and fruitful. Father, we pray that you would do in our own hearts your work. Expose sin in us. Use others to expose sin in us when necessary. Work in our hearts to bring about genuine repentance so that we may turn our hearts towards you, so that we may cast ourselves on your mercies, that we would receive your discipline in a worshipful way. Father, do with us your covenant promises. We pray all this, Father, in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.